All right, so we are continuing on week two of walking with Christ. And uh, today we're going to focus in on just one topic, and that's the idols of the heart. That's going to be our whole topic for all day. So, um, Last week, you'll remember, we, we talked about the heart. And we said the heart wasn't primarily associated with emotion, but it was associated with... Who remembers? That was a week ago. <laughs> <laughs> Who remembers? The, the mind, yeah, the intellect, thought, thinking... You do all these things in your mind, thinking, planning, talking, understanding, doubting, perception, making mistakes. All of these things happen in the heart or in your mind. We said it's, you can describe the heart another way. It's the inner life. It's the life that you live between you and God, the life that nobody sees but you and God. It's your thought life, right? We also said that the heart has one primary function, one primary job. What is the primary function of your heart? Worship. The chief function of the heart is worship. That's really important. Your heart does one thing. It has one chief occupation. The occupation of your heart is to worship. And that is what everyone's heart does, and it does it all the time. You are always engaged in an act of worship. Every aspect of your life is a form of worship. You're sitting here right now. You are engaged in a form of worship. Everything is a form of worship. Everything you do, right down to sin that you commit, is an act of worship. The Puritans recognized this. And because they recognized that everything is an act of worship, they said there is no distinction between sacred and secular. It's not your church life and then your home life. Everything you're doing is an act of worship. All activities are worship. And I know I keep repeating that, but I want to make sure we understand it. You are always engaged in worship. So when we talk about idols of the heart, we need to talk about worship. Everything you do is worship. So if we want to understand the worship of idols, we want to understand idolatry of the heart, we need to talk a few minutes about worship itself. All worship has six key elements. There are six elements to worship. And these are from Dr. Stuart Scott. Helps if I get to the right slide. The first element of worship is sacrifice. All worship involves a form of sacrifice. In the Old Testament, do you know where the first time they used the Hebrew word for worship? Any idea? Where is the first time they mentioned the word for worship? I'm sorry? No, not Abel. Good. It, you're in the right book. It's in Genesis. Genesis 22. What happened to Genesis 22? Genesis 22, Abraham is going to sacrifice his son Isaac. And he says, me and the lad are going up to the mountain to worship. He is going up to sacrifice his son. He connected worship and sacrifice together. Pagans, when they worship, they sacrifice. Jeremiah uh, 32, 35, the children of Israel went into paganism. They began to worship idols. They built altars to the god of Baal, and they sacrificed their children to Molech. That was a form of worship. When you worship, you make sacrifices for whatever it is that you worship. There are men who sacrifice relationships with their family, with their wife, with their children, so they can pursue money. 
There are people who sacrifice a relationship with Christ so they can pursue some lust or desire that they have. All worship includes a form of sacrifice. The second element of worship is you will seek after whatever you worship. If I have a compass and the compass is functioning normally, what is that compass always going to do? Point north. It always seeks after the north. That's what a compass does. You are like the compass. You will always seek after the thing that you worship. You will pursue it. You will desire it. That is where you will move to. So you will sacrifice for whatever you worship. You will seek after what you worship. And you will speak about what you worship. Now we're not talking about when you go to work and you have to speak about something. If you work on septic tanks, when you go to work, you're going to be talking about septic tanks all day. That's not saying you're worshiping the septic tanks. You can, you, you can but that's... Right. You can use your job to worship the Lord, but what I'm saying is just because you talk about septic tanks at work doesn't mean you're worshiping the septic tank, right? But when you get the opportunity to speak about what you want to speak about, when you have the opportunity to say the things that you want to say and have the conversations that you want to have, what comes out? What do you speak about? Jesus in Matthew 12, 34 said, For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. What fills your mouth reveals what fills your heart. It reveals the object of your worship. You sacrifice for it, you seek after it, you speak about it, and you spend on it. Don't think of this just as money. This can include time, energy, effort, blood, sweat, and tears. You will invest in the object of your worship. And whatever you invest in, that is what you worship. What do you invest your time in? Where do you spend your free time? What do you spend your free time doing? What are you seeking after during that time? Jesus again, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your time, your energy, you only get so much time in this world. You have a set number of days. That's more of a treasure than the money that you have in your pocket. What are you doing with it? Next one, number five, you will serve. You will serve the God that you worship. Notice the picture there is two hands that are chained together. If you chase after sin and idolatry, you will become a slave of that sin and that idolatry. That idol that you pursue, you pursue it because you think it's enjoyable, you like it, but eventually you become a slave of the idol. That idol becomes your master. It dominates and controls your life. Romans 6.16, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves, the one to whom you obey? You can be a slave of sin and idols, or you're going to be a slave of Jesus Christ. It's one or the other. Jesus said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. When you submit to obey a slave or an idol, you make yourself a slave of that idol. The last one, we're going to drop the S's here. You trust. 
you will trust in whatever you worship. If you have your Bibles, if you'll turn them to Psalm 115. I need a volunteer who'd like to read Psalm 115, verses 1 through 8. Who would like to read? Joey? Notice he starts off by talking about the one true God. And he says, our God is where? He's in the heavens. And then he defines the limitations of God. And what are God's limitations? He does whatever he pleases. Whatever he desires, that is what he can do. And then he goes and he starts talking about the idols. And they are where? They are on the earth. They are the work of men's hands. They are silver and gold. And then he defines their limitations. And their limitations are far greater. They cannot speak, see, hear, smell, feel, walk. They can't even make a sound. But notice at the very end, he says, everyone who trusts in them. When we talk about having faith in Jesus Christ, we say we are saved by faith alone. What we're saying is that I have a need and a desire. And my need is I need to be saved from the wrath of God. And I have a desire to be saved from the wrath of God. And when I say I, tr- I have faith in Christ, what I'm really saying is that I trust that Christ can provide what I need and what I desire in salvation. That he is capable of saving me from the wrath of God that I am due. When you trust in an idol, you place your trust in that idol to give you what you think you need or what you desire. Notice right before that, those who make them will be like them. The idols that you worship, the idols that people worship, these idols are made in their own image. We make idols that serve and suit the needs and desires that we feel that we have. The reason you make an idol is because you don't think that God will or can provide what you feel you need at that moment. And so you devise an idol that will give you what you want. There's a theologian who did work on the Old Testament, Otto Babb. Here's what he said about idolatry. Idols are the work of men's hands, and the personal qualities they are alleged to possess are really ascribed to them by human beings by a magnificent process of self-deception. These idols are the glorified projections of the will of their human followers and supporters. In them, the passion, sordidness, and grandeur of human beings are dramatically presented. In them, the baser stuff of human nature comes to the foreground. Your idols, the idols of men, whether they are physical idols or idols of the heart, they are nothing more than your own desires projected onto a false god to provide you what you feel you need. Now, we know Israel was engaged in idolatry. If you will, turn in your Bibles over to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 5. 
And what I want to do is I want to look at the idolatry of Israel. And we can learn a little bit about idolatry by looking at what they did. And I need some volunteers to read. i got some verses that we're going to go through. I want to start just by looking at their physical idolatry, what we would associate with idolatry, seeing a physical idol and then worshiping it. So I need, uh, I need five people. I need someone who can read uh, Ezekiel 5, verse 11. Who would like to read that? Mike? The next one, uh, Ezekiel 6, verse 4. Pastor, would you read that? Brandon, uh, Ezekiel 6, verse 9. I need someone else. Ezekiel 8. Brenton? Ezekiel 8, verse 10. And I need one more. Uh, verse 18. Ezekiel 8, verse 18. Okay? As we read through these, as you look at these verses, what I want you to listen for, one, what is the sin they're accused of? Listen for the, the mention of idolatry. The second thing I want you to listen for is, what was God's response to the idolatry? How did he respond to the sin? So the first one, Ezekiel 5, verse 11. Notice he says, your detestable idols and all your abominations. That's pretty strong language. And then he gives his judgment and he says, I will have no pity. I will not spare. There's not going to be any grace here. Next one, Ezekiel 6, verse 4. In that time, when you went, if you were a general and you conquered a city, what was the golden prize that you wanted to get to inside the city? Anybody know? I would imagine uh, where the money is. The idols, the temple, the money. The temple. The temple is where every general wanted to reach. Because if you could conquer the temple and you could smash their gods or take their gods, you, in a sense, said, I am stronger than this god. This is how generals and kings came to be known as deities. And God turns to Israel and says, not only am I stronger than your idols, not only am I stronger than these false gods, but I'm going to kill you in front of them. Kind of harsh. Look at verse 9. Who's reading verse 9? Go ahead. You guys hear the indignation God has for this? How much he hates this idolatry? Let's go to the uh, next one. Chapter 8, verse 10. It's on the outer court of the, the temple. They have all these little pictures and idols of bugs and insects and animals. Now, if you look down at verse 16, I didn't give someone to read this, but look at verse 16. 
He says, Then he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house, and behold, at the entrance of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about twenty-five men with their backs to the temple of the Lord, and their faces toward the east, and they were prostrating themselves toward the sun. This is inside, this isn't in the Holy of Holies, this is just outside the Holy of Holies. The temple was always set up facing west, and when the high priest went into worship, he always faced west. Pagans always faced the east. And here you have these men, they're right before the Holy of Holies, they've turned their back to the Holy of Holies, and they're worshiping toward the east. You can imagine what God's response to this is. Chapter 8, verse 18. Okay. But yet they kept doing it. They kept going back to idols. They kept going back to these false gods. Now, when you hear the language of God here, does this sound like they should be playing around with them? Why in the world would they keep going back after he continually tells them over and over and over again, judgment is coming, I'm not going to have pity on you, I'm not going to spare you, you're going to face my wrath, and yet they continue to turn around and do the same thing. Why would they do that? Ezekiel chapter 14. Let's look at verse 3. In Ezekiel 14, we're going to find out why it is these men kept setting up physical idols. Look at verse 3. Ezekiel writes, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts and have put right before their faces the stumbling block of their iniquity. Should I be consulted by them at all? Why did they have physical idols? Why did they build these physical idols? Because they had idols in their hearts. Their idolatry started long before they built the idols of silver and gold. It started where? It started right in their hearts. All idolatry begins on the inside, it begins in your heart. It begins in your thought life. And the exterior idols that people build, those are just the outward manifestations of what is already in the heart. Look at verse 4. Would someone like to read verse 4? Go ahead. I have, Alvin, go ahead. Notice there, he says that any man who sets up idols, plural, more than one, multiple, and then what do you see followed up with? Idols where? In your heart. One heart, multiple idols. Ezekiel 14, verse 5. In order to lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are estranged from me through all their idols. The issue here is not that they embrace idolatry so they were estranged from God. That's the wrong order. The reason they embraced idols is because they had left the worship of the one true God and they went to their idols. The first step in idolatry is leaving true worship of God 
And then when you do that, because you are a worshiper, because your heart worships, when you leave the true worship of God, you by necessity begin worshiping idols. That's proven in verse 7. For anyone of the house of Israel or of the immigrants who stay in Israel, who separates himself from me, sets up idols in his heart, puts right before his face the stumbling block of iniquity, and then comes to the prophet to inquire of me for himself, I, the Lord, will be brought to answer him in my own person. They left the worship of the one true God, and as a result, they turned straight to the worship of idols. When we leave the worship of the one true God, we will embrace an idol. Look at verse 8. God gives his judgment for these idols of the heart. We've heard his judgment for the idols of the physical idols. Now he's going to give us the judgment for the ones in the heart. I will set my face against that man. Which man? The man who's put idols in his heart. And I will make him a sign and a proverb, and I will cut him down off from among my people. So you will know that I am the Lord. God has absolutely no tolerance for physical idols. He has no tolerance for physical idolatry, and he has absolutely no tolerance for idolatry of the heart. Autobab again. When an idol is worshipped, man is worshipping himself, his desires, his purposes, and his will. As a consequence of this type of idolatry, man was outrageously guilty of giving himself the status of God and of exalting his own will as of supreme worth. What is an idol in the heart? An idol of the heart is a desire that we have that we exalt above the knowledge of God. We put our desires, our wants, our perceived needs above what God has said, and we worship those and we seek after those. We do the same thing. There's people, in this, there's people in every church in America. They come to church to worship the one true God, and in their hearts they have idols. It's the same thing. Now I want to show you from Scripture that these idols, these idols of the heart are indeed desires. They are the desires that you and I have. So if you will turn, please, to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And I just want to read the first five verses to get started here. That way we have some context. First Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Who is he talking about? Anybody know? He's talking about Israel. He's talking about Israel during the Exodus. 
as Israel comes out of Egypt, they're in the wilderness. And he's describing them here. Notice in verse 5, he says that God was not well pleased. And how do you know that God was not well pleased? Because of the very next phrase, for they were laid low in the wilderness. God brought judgment upon them in the wilderness. You can find that judgment in Numbers 14. He says, your corpses will fall in the wilderness, even all your numbered men. The judgment of God in the wilderness was that they would be killed in the wilderness, that they would die in the wilderness. Now, how is this relevant to us? Look at verse 6. Now, these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. He says, these things happened for a reason. What things? The idolatry, the sin in the wilderness, and the judgment of God happened for a reason. It was an example for us. Jump down to verse 11. He repeats it again. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. These things happened in God's providence so that we would learn something. They were written down so that we would receive instruction, so that we could learn. What is it that we are supposed to learn? Look at verse 6 again. So that, so that we can learn that we would not crave evil things. That word for crave, it's used in Matthew 5.25. It's the same word Jesus used when he said, if you look upon a woman and lust for her, it describes an intense desire. It doesn't have to be a sexual desire. An intense desire is what he means there. Moses talked about these cravings. In Numbers 11, verse 4, notice what he says about them. The rabble who were among them had greedy desires. They craved evil things. They had greedy desires. Will someone turn? I need two people who would like to read. Just two verses. Okay, would you do Psalm 106, verse 14? And I need one more. What's your name, sir? Jacob, uh, would you do Psalm 78, verse 18? Yes, sir. Go ahead. Notice that the psalmist describes these desires. Read, read that first part, lusted how? exceedingly. In the New American Standard, it says, but craved intensely. These are strong, overwhelming, driving desires. Uh, Psalm 78, verse 18. Keep going a little bit. There you go. They put God to the test. And how do they put him to the test? By asking for food, not according to God's provision, not according to what God has said, but according to their own personal desire. What were some of these desires? Look at 1 Corinthians 10, verse 7. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Notice he goes straight from talking about these 
intense cravings, this craving of evil things, and the first thing he says to him is, don't be an idolater. Don't engage in idolatry as some of them were. And then he quotes the Old Testament. He quotes Exodus 32, verse 6. Anybody know what happens in Exodus 32? We're talking about idolatry. What do you think that is? Golden calf. Here's what I'd like you to do. Everyone see the quote in your Bible? I'm going to read Exodus 32, 6. Moses, uh, excuse me, Paul leaves part of this verse off. He only quotes a part of it. And I want you to hear the part that he leaves off. Okay? And I'm going to read this twice. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. You guys see what he left off? I'm going to do it one more time. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. What did Paul leave off? He left off the part that you and I would associate with idolatry. He left off the part of them making offerings and sacrifices to this pagan idol. And he jumps straight to what? He jumps straight to their desires. And he says, don't be idolaters. And then he says, how were they idolaters? They were idolaters because of these evil desires that they had. And he, he goes on, he, he describes their desires. Okay, that's all the stuff I just explained. Okay. He describes their desires in verse uh, 8. Nor let us act immorally. Well, hang on. He describes the desires in verse 7. I'm sorry. Let me actually deal with the quote. The people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Eat and drink, we understand. They had a desire for more food, for more drink. If you read through the Old Testament, they were desiring all sorts of food, and they didn't want what they called, this is their words, that worthless food that God was raining from the sky. And then it says, and stood up to play. This is another way of saying sexual immorality, sexual sin. They were driven by their desires for food and for drink and for partying and for sexual desires. That's the idolatry that he's going after. That's the idolatry that Paul is discussing. Verse 8, nor let us act immorally as some of them did. And then he says, and 23,000 of them fell in a single day. Paul now relates their idolatry of the heart to the judgment that fell on them. 23,000 died because of this form of idolatry. If you'll turn your Bibles to Colossians 3, Paul also spoke to the Colossians about the same idea. Colossians 3, we're just going to look at one verse. Colossians 3, verse 5. Would someone like to read Colossians 3, 5? Go ahead, sir. Again, what's the subject matter here? The subject matter is idolatry. Now, in the New American Standard, he, he listed immorality, impurity, passion, and evil desire, and greed. Immorality is simply the Greek word porneia. It just describes 
a broad category of sexual sin. And it includes a whole bunch of them. The next phrase, impurity, literally means uh, uncleanness or filthiness. But it goes down to the actual desire behind the sin. So in porneia, you have the physical acts. In impurity, you have the desires behind them. He then gives two more words, passion and evil desire. Passion refers to the physical desires, the physical lusts. And evil desire refers to what's going on inside, the desires that you have inside. And then finally, greed is the insatiable desire to have more, to have what has been forbidden to you. And he calls all of these idolatry. Did you have a question? Specifically with drunkenness, I would say drunkenness is one of the ways people deal with um, the guilt and the pain of sin. Rather than dealing with sin correctly, they turn to something like alcohol or drugs to try to medicate and make the sin go away. Um, There's probably idolatry there um, that's related to the sin that's causing the drunkenness. I'll get to more on that next week as we talk about how we deal with guilt, and how we deal with the effects of sin. But, yeah, I would say drunkenness is how we medicate ourselves. John MacArthur spoke about this. Here's what he said. Evil behavior begins with evil thoughts. Therefore, the battle against all sin, especially sexual sin, begins in the mind. Evil thoughts produce sinful behavior, and pure thoughts produce righteous behavior. You'll remember this chart from last week. What you fixate your heart, what you fixate on your, your mind on, will determine the kind of fruit that you produce. If you fixate your heart and mind on the desires of the flesh, your personal desires, what you want, what you crave, you will produce bad fruit. But if you fixate your mind on the things above, you fixate your mind on the word of Christ, you will produce good fruit. All right, I want to get into actually identifying and helping you identify idols in the heart. Uh, Dr. John Street gives a list of statements, you can say, that helps identify idols in the heart. And I, I want you to just take these and just apply them to you today. Okay? Just go through these with me and think about your own heart and where you are. The first one. An idol of the heart is wanting or desiring something God does not want or desire. This is pretty obvious. In Titus 2, he actually calls them uh, worldly desires. It's to desire something sinful. It's a desire that you have for a sin, but you won't commit it. And you just sit there and think about and ruminate on it. It's something that God has expressly said you are not supposed to have, and yet you want it anyways. And you sit there and ruminate and think about it and dwell on it and ponder how fun and how wonderful it would be if you were able to actually go and have that desire. That's a pretty obvious one, right? Let's look at another one. Wanting something that God wants or desires, but wanting it so much that you become ungodly to get it, or ungodly if you don't get it. 
Think of a young man. I'll say this from the young man's perspective, because I've said from a woman's perspective, it'd be kind of weird. Think of a young man who's single, and he has an intense desire to get married. And he opens up his Bible, and he reads Proverbs 31. He says, man, that's what I want. And he's a godly young man, so he starts praying for the attributes he sees in there. He goes to 1 Peter 3, and he's like, that's what I want. And he prays boldly, and he goes to God and says, Lord, would you send her in the next year so that way I know this is the one you've sent. And he's praying, he's praying, and then the year comes and goes, and she hasn't shown up. Now, he's too pious to get mad and shake his fist at God and say, how, how dare you not give it to me? So he does the more pious thing. He changes his theology. Because in his heart, the most important thing is not what God wants for him. In his heart, the most important thing is that he achieves and obtains the desire that he has. So in order to obtain the desire for a wife, he now changes his theology. And he reads in Proverbs 1 and other places where it says she should be chaste. And he's looking around and he sees a girl he likes and he's like, well, she's not chaste. But wait a minute, the Bible also says God does not judge by appearance, so it's perfectly okay. You see what he just did? He put his, his desire above what God wants. He had a godly desire. It began as a good thing. And because he exalted his desire above what God says, it has now become idolatrous. Think of a, a parent. I don't know about you, but I have a mom that prayed for me my whole life. And moms, you, God bless you, you pray for your children. And a mom will sit there and she will pray day and night, day and night for little Billy. Please save Billy, he's a little heathen. And Billy gets older and he grows up and Bill becomes a big heathen. And mom is still there praying and praying and praying, but Bill's not coming. And because her desire to be satisfied is more important than what God has said, she now changes her theology. And she looks in the Bible in Romans where it says, if you call upon the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. And she's, oh, well, Billy, when he was nine, he walked the aisle, raised his hand, repeated the prayer, called on Jesus. Therefore, he must be saved. And she changes her theology. And why is that so dangerous? Because now she's no longer praying for Billy to be saved. Another one. Being controlled by expectations and becoming ungodly in thought, word, or deed when that expectation is not realized. Dr. Street says this is the seedbed for idols, expectations. We all have expectations. We have expectations of ourselves. We have expectations of our family, of our church, of our pastor. We all have expectations. But the question is, what do you do when you don't get the expectation, when you don't get what you expected? You spend a long day at work, you're tired, you come home, you're like, I'm bringing home the bacon, when I get home, I just want to be smelling some bacon. And you get home and you don't smell bacon cooking, you get home and you smell dirty diapers. And you walk in, dinner's not even started, your wife is in the back and she's dealing with the kids and you expected to come home and be able to sit down and relax. And when you get home, what you find is you've got all this work to do. And instead of sitting down to eat, you go in the kitchen to start cooking dinner. Now, you didn't get your expectation. You didn't get what you expected to happen. 
But how did you respond to it? Did you respond by just giving her the cold shoulder? Did you respond by getting angry, raising your voice, slamming the pots and pans? Did you become ungodly simply because you did not get what you expected, what you thought you should have gotten, what you should have received? Perceiving a deserved right and following through with ungodly thoughts, words, and actions to try to get it when that right is denied. Now, I don't know about you, but I've read the Bible a couple times. I've never read anywhere where you have a right to anything. But in America today, rights are really big, aren't they? Everybody's talking about my right to this or my right to that. And if we're honest, we think we do have rights. I have a right to be respected. I have a right not to be called names. I have a right to be treated with dignity. And then we get really pious. We open up our Bibles. My husband's supposed to love me like Christ loved the church. That's what he's supposed to be doing. And instead of allowing God to enforce his own rules, we become the enforcer. No, you're going to do what I, what I expect. This is my right. This is what God says I deserve. And we exalt that right, that perceived right, above what God has said, and we use ungodly means to try to obtain what we want rather than do what God has told us to do. Because the reality is, if we're being honest, we don't have any rights. We're slaves. We're told, pick up your cross and follow me. As A.W. Tozer used to say, you know one thing about a guy carrying a cross? He's not coming back. He's marching to his own death. You have no rights. These desires, these, these cravings that we have, these rights become functional gods. We worship before them. We bow before them. We obey them. Here's another one. Believing in something, a standard or a rule that is not of God and that leads to ungodly practices. These are standards that are not found in Scripture. Perfectionist. Perfectionist. I have to be the best at this. I have to obtain this standard that nobody can obtain, but I better obtain it. And if you get in my way and you do anything to prevent me from obtaining this standard, watch out, you're about to find out about it. Or they go after themselves and they start doing ungodly things and they start depriving their, their, themselves of their family. They start harming their family in the process. All so they can obtain some standard that God has not set. Or the perfectionists will take their high standard and they will force it onto you. And you better achieve this standard or else. Well, if we're supposed to do everything unto the Lord, wouldn't you give it your personal best? Absolutely. If you're doing it for the Lord, you would give it your personal best. But there has to be a recognition at some point that what you've done is your best. And it can't result, that desire to do your best can't result in you being sinful and ungodly because you want to achieve it or because you simply didn't achieve what you thought. Everybody wants to do something pleasing for the Lord. 
everybody wants to do it the best they can. That doesn't mean that we have to become sinful when we are striving for it or when we don't obtain it. But that's a great point. Another one. Having a mindset that is against the truth of God's word that leads to ungodliness in thoughts, words, and actions. A mindset. Self-confidence. I don't need anybody's help with anything. I can do this on my own. I don't need to pray about it. I don't need to talk to anybody about it. I can do it on my own. Having confidence in just you and no one else. When someone else comes to you with the word of God, no, no, I can't take your thoughts on that. I don't see it myself. It's not my opinion, so I'm not going to listen to it. Someone tries to give you advice. No, 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 no. It's okay. I, I don't need that. I've got it. That is a mindset that says that I am sufficient in and of myself. Is that a godly mindset to have? We're called to be dependent on who? Ourselves? We're called to be dependent upon God. Okay. That's quite a few of those. I think there's like eight of them. I'm gonna, we can knock all these down to one sentence. You ready? Ask yourself a question. I must have blank. Or I must not have blank. I must have this expectation. You must give me this. The only thing you should put in that blank is Christ, is the knowledge of God, is serving Him. And we're not talking about I must have oxygen. That's not what we're referring to here. We're talking about your desires. Okay? Yes, you must have oxygen and you must have food at times. Yes. But we're talking about your desires. When you say, I must have something, and you make that the most important thing in your life, to the point that you would become ungodly to receive it or ungodly if you don't get it, that is idolatry. It makes you the center of the world. It makes you the center of everything. The center of all idolatry is self. It makes you the most important part of worship. Pagans worship for themselves. They reject God. They refuse to worship Him, and they turn to worshiping themselves. Romans 1.29, or 25, For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator. Your heart is a temple. Our hearts were designed for worship. We are to worship God in spirit and in truth. And if you're going to worship God in spirit and truth, you need to understand something. Worship is not about you, and it's not about me. That's the problem with seeker-sensitive churches. They make worship all about the person coming to the service. And it makes them the center of attention, the center of worship. True worship focuses on God. He died for all so that all who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died. All right. 
you have homework this week. I know. Don't be mad. There's other people who have given quizzes during Sunday school, so I'm not giving quizzes, okay? Can I get a volunteer who'd like to pass this out? There you go. Did you just pass those out for me? Thank you, sir. All right, while he's passing those out, this homework is a homework. It wasn't actually homework, but it was highly recommended. We try this in, in seminary, so guess what? You get to do it too, okay? There's some rules I would like you to follow for your homework. First, I'm not going to come and ask you and check your homework, okay? So you're not going to have to talk about what you found next week, okay? There's some rules for your homework. This homework is intended to help you find idols in your own heart. Now, maybe I'm just a worse sinner than everybody in the room, but there is a desire to hide and to conceal some of these, okay? So I'm going to ask that when you do your homework, you do it alone, because if there's a desire to do it, to hide it when you're alone, imagine how that's going to feel when there's someone else sitting next to you. Okay? The other thing I'm going to ask is that uh, you pray before completing it. You'll notice at the top there's a verse there from Psalms. Open up your Bible, read the verse, and then pray. When I was a kid, we had a book, and it had red writing in it. And we had glasses with red lenses. And when you put the glasses on, the red writing disappeared because the ink on the paper was the same color as the color of the lens, right? You have lenses over your eyes that are stained with sin. You can't see your own heart. And a lot of your sin disappears when you look at yourself. So go to God and ask him to help you see your own heart. Secondly, or thirdly, be honest. This is brutal honesty. Like, be harsh. I mean, who are you kidding? It's just you and God. He already knows what's there. So you lying or kidding yourself and not being honest with yourself doesn't really help you. Thank you, sir. And that means no coddling. You can't baby yourself here. You can't coddle yourself and try to make yourself feel better. Just be honest. Be straightforward about it. And then finally, take your time. Don't rush it. Even if it takes a couple days to go through it all, don't rush it. Okay? All right, any questions? Like the first question that says, what are my goals, expectations, or intentions? Is it life itself? Or? Would you like me to go through those questions with you? Real quick? Give me a start, because I mean, you can take that five different directions. All right, look at that first question. What are my goals, expectations, and intentions? There's a tendency, and we all do it, to overthink this. What comes to your mind? What is your ultimate goal? What are your ultimate objectives? Don't overthink it. What are your ultimate objectives? What are your goals? What do I become anxious over or fearful over? Do you struggle with worry, anxiety? What are some of those events, what are some of those times in your life that you really struggle with anxiety and worry? When do you become fearful? Fear is an inverted love. If you know what you fear, you know what you love. If I fear other men's opinions and them being critical of me, what do I love? I love hearing good things about me. I love someone telling me what I, how good I am. Right? You are on it. What makes me happy? What brings the most happiness in my life? If you want a good way to figure this one out, where do you go to get happy? What do you do to find joy? 
What motivates me? Here's another question, another way you can phrase that. Why do you get out of bed in the morning? Why do you get up and go to work? What is your ultimate motivation? Why are you in Sunday school this morning? What really motivated you to come to church today? Why am I up here teaching? What motivates me to want to do this? What would I like possibly more than anything? If there was a genie in the bottle who can give you anything that you desired right now, just rub the lamp and make your request, what would it be? What would your greatest desire be? Number six, in what situation do I respond in anger? Now, is all anger sinful? No. But is there a sinful form of anger? When we get angry because we don't get what we want? So look at the times that you get angry. Why are you getting angry? What's causing your anger? Is it really righteous? Is that truly what God has said you should be angry about? And when you're angry, number seven, what perceived right has been denied? Has someone violated one of your rights? Has someone robbed you of an expectation that you had? They denied you your expectation or your right, and that's why you're angry? Or are you angry for the glory of God? And that last one, what biblical standard or principle permits the thought, word, or action? And you can apply number eight to every one of those questions. When you say, well, my goal and expectation is this, do you have a biblical standard, a biblical basis for that goal and expectation? Is there a biblical reason for you to be angry or fearful? Okay? And then the last, those last few, those aren't questions, those are just things that you can do to resolve the issue. All right? Any questions? And that's why you need to be alone. You need to pray about this. Um, I mean, really, who are we kidding? It's just you and God. Who, who's getting deceived here? Any other questions? Comments? I'm just going to comment. I think if we actually do this uh, in the right manner, it, it's also going to show you that whether you are seeking the Lord or not. Yeah. The ultimate goal is to what? To be pleasing to Him in all respects, right? Not just in our behavior, but in our thoughts, in our deeds, in our words, in our desires. So, spend a little time this week, look at it, and then when we come back next week, we'll, we'll talk about some other issues that might come up with this. Alright? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. 
Uh, We know that this is sometimes difficult just to look at our own hearts and to consider our own condition. And we just ask that you would help us to be honest and that you would help us to search inside and that you would show us where we stand and, and the sin in our lives, that we could take it to the cross, that we can confess it to Christ and be cleansed of it and then receive the grace that we need to change. And we ask that you bless our time of worship this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.